Hi, my name is Alad Gross. Welcome to the Alad Pod, an online, uncensored town hall program designed to bring our government back to you. Every episode is a recording of our live show with special guests and questions asked by audience members like you. Today, I'm joined by Luke Barber, candidate for the 89th House District of Missouri. Luke is a disability self-advocate. We talk about the changes he intends to bring as a legislator in the Capitol. Luke, how are you doing today? Good, how are you? I'm very good. I'm good. I'm glad. Even better now that you're here and everything's working out. So this is great. Luke, um, could you tell us, tell us why, you know, you, so obviously you're running, you're a candidate, you're interested in doing this. You made it past your, your primary. Great job. <laughs> uh, so tell us, tell us why, a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself to everybody, and why are you running for office here in Missouri? Um, so I'm Luke. Um, I'm a candidate for House District 89, um, which predominantly includes the De Pair, Town and Country and portions of Baldwin kind of area. Um, I am running uh, because the Republican incumbent, uh, Dean Platcher, uh, doesn't really show up to the Capitol as best he should. Um, I've tried to meet with him numerous times um, regarding um, some ideas that I've had for legislation and um, disability issues. Um, and he wasn't available. Neither him nor his L.A. Would, mm-hmm. were available when I would go down there. Uh, and so I said, you know what? I can do something about this. Um, <laughs> so I decided to run um, to try to, because I was like, fine, if you're not going to listen to me. I might as well challenge you for it. Uh, The other reason I decided to run is because we've seen a big lack of disability access and inclusion. Mm -hmm. Um, We're seeing the segregation and uh, special education. We're seeing the lack of resources in K-12 predominantly. uh, And the lack of supports and employment and in all areas of the um, lifespan. Yeah. And so we're seeing this big disconnect of this very systematic sort of ableism um, and other forms of systemic oppression in society. Um, I personally have been someone that has um, an autism spectrum diagnosis. in order to receive targeted case management, I've had to have Medicaid, um, which, frankly, I don't feel should be the case. I feel that I should be able to get it with private insurance mm-hmm. uh, if I so choose to have private insurance. Uh, because by have by being forced to be on Medicaid, it almost um, limits the amount of income and hours that someone's able to work. Mm-hmm. Whereas I could get employer coverage if I just was willing to work that. 30 plus hours a week and get the employer coverage, but the employer coverage doesn't cover the services and supports that people with disabilities need. 
And so we're in this catch point too. Yeah. We try to succeed and, and make a living for ourselves without services or do we not and have the services we need to actually be successful? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where are you, I guess, what's your, your working situation right now? What are you doing? Um, so I'm actually working with Easter Seals Midwest as a self-determination instructor, okay. um, as well as a bagger at Schnucks. Mm-hmm. Um, recently, the voters passed Medicaid expansion, which raises the income and asset limits up to 138% of the poverty limit, mm-hmm. uh, which allows um, people with disabilities to work more hours and still receive the services that they need. Um, however, it's not done yet because they still have to implement it and actually put all the application pieces together so that the state can carry out those wishes that the voters said they wanted. Yeah, that's a very good point because a lot of folks... You know, in Missouri, we just passed Medicaid expansion because the legislature didn't want to do it on their own. The governor didn't want to do it on his own. And uh, that forced we, the people, to go to the polls and vote to do that and to provide folks with uh, Medicaid, which is, I mean, it's, it's going to be a, a very big change for Missouri in a very positive way. At least all the studies have indicated in terms of creating jobs and access to health care, affordable care and everything else. Um, this is, you know, I think a topic that doesn't get as much attention is that now that Medicaid has been expanded, if you have a legislature that already disapproves of it and is trying to put uh, more roadblocks in the way, there are going to be a lot of folks who are going to struggle to actually get that access to Medicaid. And that implementation is such an important part. Is there is there something, I guess, that you, uh, in running... As a legislator, what what would you, I guess you in that position? What would be your position? What would you be doing, or what would you be looking out for to make sure the implementation process is effective in Missouri? The thing that I would look at is um, how the system currently is, and a lot of the roadblocks that the current Medicaid system has, um, because currently the system to apply is a big multi-page application, um, takes years to actually get um, oftentimes a disability determination. Um, And so people cannot really access the current Medicaid system unless they have a documented disability uh, or meet certain criteria. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things that I really like to try to pinpoint um, as someone that's running for um, office and the implementation phase is I've had Medicaid. I know how Medicaid works. I've seen the roadblocks they've tried to put in place. Um, In fact, um, last year I was part of the Medicaid purge um, and had to fight to get reinstated and stuff. And so I say, let those that know the system be the ones to implement it. Because if they don't know the system, how are they going to implement it and know that it's being implemented correctly? Yeah. 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 And I think, I mean, just... You having that experience, too, is really beneficial because I think, uh, uh, unfortunately, there are people who are making policy decisions in, in our state and uh, throughout our country who really don't know um, and don't have that experience. Uh, so that's that's very important. Uh, we did get a comment that came in uh, saying uh, it's from, from 
Karis or is it Cherie? I don't, I'm not sure. I'm sorry if I'm saying your name wrong. And with somebody with a first name, that's a little tough for folks to say. I understand. But Ms. Crane, it looks like. Uh, ironically, expanding Medicaid frees more people up to being more productive. Is that what we're supposed to want? Yeah, and, and that is exactly right. Um, I, I think in a lot of ways. And we also, you know, I've talked a lot on this show about um, about uh, substance abuse treatment that's going to be available to a lot more folks from just like the justice side of everything and public health and uh, Karis. Oh, great. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's great. Thanks. Thanks for the, that's, that's the benefit of doing this live. It's a little delayed, but we'll get to it. Uh, but yeah, I, th- I think, you know, that's kind of the idea behind this is that it, not only is it going to save a lot of lives, it's going to keep a lot of hospitals open. It's also going to create a whole lot of jobs in Missouri And when you have folks who are really trying to fight that and are on the wrong side of that, um, (laughs) we've we've got problems, that's for sure. Uh, But yeah, Luke, could you tell us, I guess, a little bit more about about your background? So are you you, uh, Missouri, original Missouri? Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? All that kind of stuff. So um, I was born in Illinois, in Elk Grove Village, Uh, moved to St. Louis at the age of three. Um. Because my dad's work moved them to St. Louis. Um, so um, for basically the past 20-some years or so, um, I've been living in sort of the uh, St. Louis, kind of Kirkwood, predominantly Kirkwood area. Uh, Kirkwood kind of the pair, kind of mm-hmm. where the split kind of is kind of area. Uh kind of near West County mall kind of area. Yeah. Uh, and so we've been, I've been seeing the issues that are sort of been affecting us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and people don't have, have that experience. Um, we had a public transportation system in St. Louis that was actually set up um, through the historic process of redlining. Mm-hmm. Uh in fact, many of the ways, the reasons the metro lines are set up was they said, we don't want those people. Those people um, is really sort of a racist uh, systemic attack um, because really what they mean when they say we don't want those people is we don't want African-Americans. Um, we don't want that because we think it's going to bring crime into that area. Uh, and so we keep seeing this historic systemic oppression, this, this view that you shouldn't be able that we see the car market is so high. We see employment wages so low. Mm-hmm. We see all these things that are really stacked up against people. Yeah. Uh, and, And until we start to address the root causes of these issues, nothing's ever really going to get done. Yeah. Yeah. No, I uh, very much agree. Uh, the, the 89th district that you're running for, can you describe like what area that is for folks who are, unfortunately, there are a lot of people who are less familiar with uh, our state representative districts, despite how important they are. But could you describe, I guess, the general area that, that that's in, in the St. Louis area? So in St. Louis, it's sort of near where 270 kind of meets Manchester is kind of the common area. 
Um, we include sort of West County Mall area for, for kind of a big portion, but it really includes town and country as another kind of big hub. Um, so this is an urban area. Um, it stretches portions to Baldwin, kind of near the Queenie Park kind of area. Uh, and includes town and country, includes parts of sort of Chesterfield, but not much. Includes parts of Huntley. It's it's a I'm in I'm in one of the larger uh, house districts, uh, mm-hmm. in terms of constituents. In fact, I'm in the largest house district in the state of Missouri oh, well. in terms of constituents. Um, and uh, and so uh, the district lines are very kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're drawn <laughs> strategically, uh, ger- gerrymandered, um, which actually got its gerrymandered actually got its term from a very interesting thing. Um, there was a person named Jerry who drew a salamander on a map, and that's how they got gerrymandered. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they, we've certainly got some uh, some interesting ones. I know we were talking about uh, clean Missouri. Uh, which we passed. Uh, again, the people had to vote on that, but it dealt with a lot of the redistricting process. But some of the districts in Missouri, oh, goodness, I can't remember the number. I feel like it was maybe in maybe in southwest Missouri, but there was a district that literally looks like Godzilla with two laser cannons coming off of the edge. Just how in the world did they draw these things? But they did, because exactly right. I mean, they're drawing that to maintain power or to keep power in a certain area. Um, and so you're going to be running at the same time that you're running. Uh, there's going to be uh, Amendment Three on the ballot, uh, which is uh, uh, not so clean, Missouri. Some folks are calling dirty Missouri, uh, but it is uh, an attempt to basically reverse a lot of the changes that clean Missouri made, especially to the redistricting process. And as we talked about right before we came on, uh, there's been some developments there this week in court. Uh, where there was a summary that was put forward by the legislature because they're the ones who proposed this, and now we have to approve it because it would be a change to Missouri's constitution, and that requires our vote of the people. So uh, that uh, uh, Amendment 3, the language that we would have seen on the ballot was uh, written in a way that a judge uh, ended up calling very deceptive and unfair and inaccurate uh, in a whole lot of ways, so they rewrote what that language is. Uh, what are you, what are your feelings about clean Missouri in general and Amendment Three, and and how that I guess that interacts with your campaign for state representative? Um, so Amendment Three is sort of interesting, um, considering that the repeal effort of it, um, SJR thirty eight, uh, was um, was done in a way in which Plotcher, my opponent. Um, was the bill handler, which at the federal level is called a whip. Um, he's the person that basically um, tracked the bill process, um, organized the votes, um, and basically made sure that it happened. Um, so um, a couple of years ago, uh, Plotcher tried to sponsor a very similar bill, um, was caught in committee um, because the people and got aware of it. They caught on to it, killed it in committee. Mm -hmm. So this year, um, because of COVID, they told people don't come to the Capitol. 
so they sort of really had snuck it through through a back door kind of um, behind the scenes kind of way um, without much public comment. Uh, and this is significant because we're seeing a big deal of dark money in Missouri politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, big lobbyist groups giving big checks um, to candidates in an effort to try to um, control votes on various pieces of legislation. Uh, and what we're seeing is that certain PACs are given money to certain candidates for very specific reasons. Um, I know my opponent has taken a lot of money from the payday lenders and banking industries, to be specific, um, has taken quite a bit of money from the healthcare industry that wanted to see Medicaid fail, uh, has taken quite a bit of money from corporate PACs, big corporate PACs and, and lobbyist firms. And so my opponent, um, based off the most recent um, campaign filing report, showed that he has 160,000 cash on hand. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of that from PACs and lobbyists. Um, I, on the other hand, um, have most of my funding from private individuals. Uh, And so I only have like 6,000. Uh, but when we look at campaigns and we look at the work in Jeff City, isn't Jeff City really the people's house? Isn't the point of legislature legislators to do the work that the people want them to do and that the people vote to send them to? And so we're seeing this big stark contrast that they're just lining their pockets with money. Mm-hmm. 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 Some good questions you're asking. Uh, and, uh, you know, folks who have followed with this show a bit know uh, I have certain opinions about dark money funding in general, which it's got that name because it consists of uh, not only – so in this case, you, you oftentimes know where the money's coming from and so you can identify, oh, it's coming from this kind of industry, this kind of company, whatever it might be. Uh, but dark money is is coming from some of those sources, but we don't even know because – They've thrown it through either a fake corporation or a fake charity, and then that's the entity that donates. And we never see the original sources of those donations, which causes a whole lot of problems in our uh, our political system. So that's a very, yeah, very, very big problem. And for those who, uh, and it, you know, it really follows those folks who are already in power. And when you talk about gerrymandering, the same kind of idea with redistricting, the idea behind that is to keep folks in power, in power. And that's the same idea with, with all this dark money spending too. So what, you know, that this is the question that folks get a lot, right? So, uh, you're taking this path. You want to do this because, uh, you believe that the state government should be owned by the people. What an interesting concept, but, uh, you're doing this. And so you have less money on hand, uh, for your campaign than your opponent. So what, what are ways that you, work to fight that? Is there a way to fight that that you've seen? Um, So the ways that I've been trying to fight it is through grassroots efforts. Mm. Uh, You can't beat it with money, beat them with people. Um, And so um, I've had to hire less staff for my campaign, less advisors, because frankly, I just don't have the budget for it. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had to uh, sort of get creative with how I get my messaging out there uh, and the ways that uh, we're doing more peer-to-peer based stuff or neighbor-to-neighbor type stuff and uh, are really trying to go at this from a grassroots level kind of response. Um And so we're able to see the that um, people know people. Mm-hmm. And so if you're talking to people and you say, hey, I have these five friends, and you tell these friends, hey, this person is running a campaign on these issues and these values, and this is their platform, and you should vote for them. Yeah. They're more likely to vote for that person if a friend tells them than if they just get a mail or a piece in the mail. Right. Right. Yeah, those those individual networks are so important. You know, it's interesting because um, when I was running, uh, you know, folks would often say – yeah, I, I'd ask for people's endorsements, right, anybody who I would meet. And folks would often say, oh, well – I mean, you don't want mine. I'm not important. And first of all, yes, you are. Everybody is important. Uh, but two, you just – you don't know it, – it, just like you're saying, you you saying I support this person and then explaining why starts a whole conversation. And you have influence over others. People are, are looking at you. And, and, and with, with a race like – uh, heck, with uh, House District, um, House Senate seat, even in the Attorney General's race, there are a lot of folks who just don't know much about those races. Um, they're not covered very well, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, our, our local media and everything else has seen a lot of cutbacks and loss of revenue and all of this stuff. So that's the situation that we're in. And I think now, uh, you know, that word of mouth is so important especially when you are trying to fight uh, big money in a district like that and such a big one, like you pointed out too. So um, it's very important. Uh, let's see. We did have a question here from John. I think I can get this one actually on the screen for folks to see. So John asks, uh, what are your thoughts on kids going back to school? Um, so yeah, let's put on your, your legislator cap right now, uh, your state government cap. Luke, and I mean, what do you think? You know, there's there's a big discussion now around uh, the virus and the outbreak and everything else with kids going to school. Uh, you know, we're just starting now uh, with teachers going back, everything else. What are your thoughts about that? Uh, my thoughts are we got to take this look and take a look at it from a um, numbers-based statistical kind of approach um, because we're seeing COVID um, and the virus numbers continue to rise. Um I know uh, recently the CDC has uh, COVID as the number three cause of death um, with um, heart attack as number one and a car or motorcycle or accidental uh, death as number two Mm. and COVID as number three. Um, I've seen this big debate um, recently with school of, of do we send it back, do we not? Um, because for some people with uh, disabilities, that personal interaction, those social skills, those activity-based learning is very important. Mm. 
But on the other hand, we have this virus that is serious, that is dangerous, that has the potential to kill um, people much older than school kids, uh, people in their 50s plus, and people with underlining health conditions predominantly are the ones that are dying. Uh, but even if you aren't going to get seriously sick, which is the case that they're saying with these younger children, that they're going to get more mild illnesses, uh, is if they have a mild illness, but they bring it home to a family member who happens to be in that high-risk pool, mm-hmm. and they get their family member sick, that family member is probably going to die. And so uh, we're seeing a big push for what are called learning pods recently. Mm-hmm which is where families of like a couple small groups of families are kind of trying to get together, like three or four kind of families um, or a set number of families are trying to get together uh, to really sort of educate their kids uh, so that they have that interaction piece. Uh, But what's significant about the pods is the pods know each other's uh, social distancing plans and stuff. Uh, which allows them to actually be prepared and safe while they're still learning in, in that interactive format. Um, I know Kirkwood School District and Parkway, um, which are two of the big schools in my district, um, both have said we're doing online only for mm-hmm. at least a portion of the school year. Um, we'll reevaluate it later. Uh, and see if the numbers come down. Um, We're also seeing a lack of the ability to have social skills, occupational therapy, or speech-language pathology in in an online format. So um, special ed and a bunch of the special ed schools are throwing a fit because they're like, how are we going to provide our services? How are we Mm -hmm. supposed to provide services? Uh, But frankly, I think the threat is just too high that really kids should be learning in an electronic format or in a format that is suited for them that allows them to learn but at the same time is not having large group gatherings because even even the small group cat gatherings that are where they're under 10 people or so you can still get one person gets COVID they're all going to get it yeah it's it's the rule of one. One gets it, we all get it. Yeah. Um, and so we got to be very strategic about it because we want. Obviously, kids kids ought to learn, and they should should have their education. But at the same time, we want to make sure that they're all safe about it because we don't want them getting sick. We don't want them getting hurt at the same time. Right. Right. Yeah. It's uh, goodness, um, especially for. You know, I mean, there's such a, such a worry, and I mean, you know, you're 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 also uh, working in in uh, with groceries and, and folks who are coming in, and I mean, it's it's just such an, like an important and uh, as a uh, DSP uh, direct support kind of stuff. Well, explain uh, that. No, explain that how how that interacts too. Uh, so, even though I'm doing grocery and stuff, I'm. At my, at my second job mm-hmm. with Easter Seals and stuff is the self-determination. Yeah. Uh, is I'm actually having to train others with disabilities about their rights and responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and we're trying to do them in really small gatherings and stuff. But I have to take I take extreme caution when I'm doing the DSP stuff because the a lot of times the people that are taking these classes are the ones that are at that elevated risk. They have the underlining health conditions. Um, even autism is actually one of those underlining health conditions that puts me actually at a much higher risk for COVID than some other people. Um, because they found that with autism and stuff, there's some biological um, stuff that happens um, predominantly. Um, yeah. And so it puts me at higher risk. Uh, but I've seen the number of people and stuff um, in, in grocery and with the DSP and stuff. Heck, I've seen people come down with COVID. Mm-hmm. Coworkers and and friends and family members and et cetera kind of stuff come down with it. Uh, and and frankly, uh, one person is too many. It shouldn't, they, we could have, one of the things that I look at with this COVID stuff is that we could have had this all done months ago if people would have just cooperated and um, listened to the mask mandates and the safety precautions and the um, cleanliness standards of the use disinfectant sprays and all the surface cleaning. Uh, instead, this has gone on for um, since March yeah. now. Um, it's been about five or six months now. And um, frankly, this could have been done in three if we all would have just done what we needed to do. Mm. Yeah. And identified the virus, isolated it, we all masked up, put our masks on, and cleaned all the surfaces and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we even had uh, Dr. Burks, uh, well-known on, on the TV circuit now, come in uh, to Missouri just this week uh, and uh, is, is strongly encouraging folks to wear masks and was, you know, touting the importance of mask mandates and all that, and actually, a majority of, of Missourians in the polls that have been done around the state uh, support that because, for the exact reasons that you're talking about, uh, it's a lot of folks just want this at least to be more contained uh, than it is right now. Uh, you know, without a vaccine and with a new new virus, new form of the virus, it's always hard to deal with these kinds of outbreaks. But uh, certainly, uh, it, it didn't have to be this widespread. Um, and, and this bad and, and just ongoing without really any sense of when there will be some control over it. I mean, there's a lot of travel that folks do in this country and from one place to another. So the openness of that society contributes a bit to that. But still, um, goodness, we're in a, in a bad way. And, you know, folks are talking about, well, the economy and open up the economy. This is hurting the economy. Like, this is what's happening right now. Like, that's, that's the damage that it's causing for so many folks because we didn't, we didn't put that – we didn't have that leadership to be frank, to, to really make sure that we weren't having this trouble right now. Um, yeah. And so for the schools, you know, I've been, I've been teaching in schools for a while. Um, and I, I, I agree. I mean, there's so many, so many things that kids need in person at a school. Um, you're talking about food services, which thankfully some districts are figuring out how to do that. Uh, you're talking about 
uh, access to, to internet, access to all these different things. And when we talk about rural, urban, suburban Missouri, um, a lot of folks are now asked to do virtual without the, really the capacity or the ability to do virtual. Now that's a whole bunch of other problems that are involved there too. Uh, but districts are trying really hard and folks are trying really hard to make this work. Uh, but it, it makes it much harder on our kids and on our families when we're not taking these precautions seriously and we're not actually working together. I mean, our country really needs us to step up. Um, and that's each and every one of us for each other. And uh, we just we need more of that. And it would be nice to have leadership that agreed. So, um, yeah, those those are. Very good points. The importance of school. I mean, I think that, you know, one, one of the things in all the, the stuff we've talked about so far, healthcare, education, all these things, is that the virus has really exacerbated those weaknesses within that system. And it's making people realize what happens for folks who don't have as many resources and how they are reliant on so many of these different areas that we haven't, we just neglected because just like you said, they don't have the money. They're not the ones who are paying for our politicians right now to get elected. And so those decisions aren't made on their behalf right now, and it's sad to see. Um, Connor, okay, Connor's got a question about um, ranked choice voting. Let me put this on. Hold up. See if I can get that on there. You were talking about gerrymandering earlier and how it leads to corruption. Can you discuss your stance on ranked choice voting? Uh, Ranked choice voting is an interesting – for those folks who don't know, ranked choice voting – is, you know, when we go and we vote, if there's a whole bunch of folks that we're voting for, sometimes you see that the vote gets split and nobody ends up with 50% or more of the vote. And so you end up electing somebody who might have, I don't know, 39, 40-something, could be 20-something, could even be lower than that in some situations. So ranked choice voting is a system that's been, it it is in use in some places. Uh, It's not why it's not used, for example, for president or anything like that, but it's it's being used right now so that you, as the voter, when you get your ballot, you would select uh, your choices. So this is my top one, this is my second, my third, and there's some different variations of this. But at the end, uh, when uh, these candidates, when the vote is, is happening and these candidates are being eliminated because they didn't get enough percentages of the vote, Uh, then we go, if your first choice is gone, you go to your second. If your second is gone, you go to your third. And that way you end up with somebody who is, who has over 50%, a majority of the vote and that, that approval in that way. Um, it's basically like if you had, um, if you, if your rule was, if you don't get to 50%, we're going to have a runoff like a lot of places do. Uh, then we're going to go again and see who's left there, and we're going to try to elect the person with the with the majority of the vote. This basically does that runoff automatically for you, so you select your first, second, and third choices. Um, and there's some proposals to get that done here in Missouri. What are, what are your thoughts about ranked choice voting? I think ranked choice voting is actually um, a system that should be used because it would save us actually our state money on the long run because mm-hmm. we wouldn't have to have Um, multiple elections. Um, It also um, has an interesting component to it in the sense that it empowers uh, third party or more progressive candidates, Mm -hmm. um, candidates that aren't quite the establishment, um, that aren't quite the um, major parties either, um, such as the Denver Republican were sort of known as the two major parties. Um, 
and we've seen a lot. We keep seeing this big push for libertarian, for the libertarian green, the constitutional parties, etc. But they just haven't quite hit that threshold Uh, because there's this big stigma that if you're not in one of the two major parties, you can never win. Mm -hmm. Uh, And frankly, it should be about the individual and not the party so much the individual and what they stand for yeah. than so much the party. Uh, because uh, time and time again, we keep seeing progressives or progressive candidates, candidates that care a lot about the issues, um, get shut out by one of those major uh, parties. Right. Right. Yeah, no, that's... Absolutely right. So in that situation, if, for example, your favorite candidate was of a third party that doesn't have much support, but that was your favorite candidate, you could feel safe in voting for that person because then you get to make your second pick too. Um, And just like you said, that helps some people get over some thresholds. It helps uh, probably more diversity of opinion and more folks are going to get attention paid to them. It's interesting because we're we're at a time, and it happens, you know, it's kind of like every generation, but... Uh, there's big changes that are made to the electoral system to make it more fair, uh, to, to, to make it more accessible for folks. It really seems like, I mean, we're probably overdue at this moment, but we're looking at all these issues from, uh, redistricting and gerrymandering to the way that these campaigns are being financed. So instead they're accountable to us instead of folks with just a whole lot of money to the way that even we're, we're making sure our our votes are counted. I, I agree. I mean, it would, it would save now, I mean, it would save the state a lot of money in terms of not having to go and do, uh, um, you know, some new runoff or some other process because each of those elections costs money and you just do it on that same day right there. Uh, but it also makes those election results seem a little bit more legitimate because now you're getting somebody with more approval, uh, with over a majority approval. So, um, yeah, good point. Sure. Currently, currently, our system is um, commonly a um, party right. party nominee based. Um, where what where we have single winner districts, mm-hmm. we have single single district with single district runoffs with single winner districts. Um, currently, I know there's been. Um, there's, when it comes to ranked choice voting as well, there's also two thoughts. There's the multi-member district, and there's still the um, single di- district winner mm-hmm. with ranked choice voting. So multi-district winner, um, we're seeing this in other states where they kind of lump a couple of the districts together, or they lump have fewer districts, but they elect two to three kind of people from that one district or higher numbers from the same district. Uh, And we've, uh, and then there's also the single winner, which is kind of what we have currently, but with a ranked choice voting. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there's, sort of the the two thoughts kind of process when it comes to ranked choice voting. Currently, our system does not have ranked choice voting. Right. Uh, so I know there's been talk about doing a petition drive or trying to figure out ways to kind of go after it and create that. 
um, either through the legislature or through a petition drive to be determined later after we kind of figure out who the legislature is and whether they support it or not. Um, we currently have the single winner district. Right. With single districts. Right. That is not ranked choice voting. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's there's some especially like on the local level, oftentimes you see it there first before it goes to something on the state level. But yeah, uh, seems like it would make sense. I agree. Okay, wait, we got a question here from Audrey. Oh, hi, Audrey. How are you? Uh, Luke, if elected, what would be your first action in Jefferson City? What would be your top priority uh, state representative, you're new, you're in, you've got, you know, I mean, you've obviously been involved in the Capitol for a little bit already with advocacy and other work there, uh, and you pay a whole lot of attention to these things, but what would be your top priority as a state legislator? One of my top priorities is really sort of the disability access and advocate inclusion kind of stuff. Um, we're seeing stuff where um, the ways that Jeff City op- runs and operates um, doesn't realize sort of the structural uh, barriers that it has, as well as the viewpoint and sort of mentality barriers that it has towards the disabled. Um, some of the microphones that the state is using do not work right. Mm. Um, some of the um, offices do not have the um, correct door width or turn radius for people with disabilities. Uh, and so we see that Justity has almost purposely shut out the disabled from really making their voices heard. Mm. Uh, we've seen that um, old committees, committees that have been in the Capitol before, go dormant and almost go to the graveyard, never to return. Uh, there used to be a committee, I believe, called Impact which looked predominantly at the impact of bills um, as they're related to uh, disabilities. Uh, it was a committee that we had in the past that, that went dormant. One of the things that people don't know is that in order to get a committee out from the dormant place that it is mm-hmm. to reactivate it, it requires actually a majority of the um, membership to say we want that committee. Um, and so, ideally, I'd like to try to see that committee be reestablished. I'd like to see a lot of these accessibility needs addressed, uh, and just overall, just kind of make make it so that people are more aware of, hey, this is what's going on. Because right now, people don't know what's going on in Jeff City. Yeah, there's not that transparency in in our capital. There's not that openness. Um, and so. And, of course, the implementation of Medicaid and making sure that that is really good. Uh, and so a lot of the priorities that I have is looking at what are the structural and and sort of viewpoint barriers to society. Mm-hmm. What, are the, what are the challenges that impact people? Uh, I haven't really picked a whole bunch of a single issue so far. Other than to really, other than really, sort of the disability side, um, sort of strategically, because uh, it's not my will that should determine justity. 
but the will of the constituents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you, I guess, you know, it's, it's a, it's an interesting point about, you know, representative government as a whole, right? Cause there's, you know, the thought that, uh, one, right. You're getting elected right as the representative. So now folks have their opinions and then your job is to represent them. I think there's folks who are like, yeah, that's, you know, that's what I do. And I need to make sure that what I'm doing is, is what folks want. And then there's, you know, there's some folks on the other side who are, well, you know, like you are elected for that leadership, uh, in that position. And then you're the one making those choices. It does seem like it makes sense for, for a little bit of both, right? Cause you're the one that they chose, but at the same time you are chosen to represent them. What, what are ways that you would want? I mean, in, in the very beginning of this, you were talking about one of the reasons why you were running is because you didn't feel like your voice was being heard in government, especially in your own district. So as a state representative, what would you do to make sure that folks in your district are being heard by you? What do you think, what do you think should change there? Um, we've got a current representative that doesn't really listen to his constituents. Um, the phones lines are pretty much off the hook, um, set up basically so that you can't leave a voicemail. Um, the legislative aides aren't really there. They don't even leave notes to say like, gone to lunch, be back in five or whatever kind of time frame. Mm. Uh, and so it, we see this this just almost where they almost don't really care about the fact that, that hey, we might have gone up there for a legislative day or a lot or to kind of do like kind of these legislative kind of, this is what some of our priorities are kind of thing. Uh, and so one of the things that I really want to do is to really have sort of an open office, kind of almost an open door kind of policy mm. kind of thing uh, where I have an LA and my, and myself that is there that is willing to listen to kind of constituents. Uh, granted, if there's a vote on the floor or something, I'll have to, be there to vote on it. Uh, but at the same time, I feel like I should be there to be able to listen to what the needs are mm-hmm. the, because we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what we don't know. And many times if you don't know everything that's happening at every split second, uh, Sometimes you think something is good, but you don't know the actual reality of it. Right. Um, We've seen it where they say, oh, this is a really good idea. But then when you look at the caveats to that idea, you start to realize, wait, that's not how it's actually applied. That's not how it actually works. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's probably a very important reason why we need to have a government that's really more representative in the first place because you're getting more voices in, you're getting more perspectives in. Um, that is very important. Uh, Audrey, uh, oh, whoa, you got some questions from Audrey here. Oh, this is good. Uh, issue-based questions. So we got that first one. Uh, what is your plan on uh, gun violence in Missouri? What are your stances there, your position on the NRA? Um, you know, obviously in, in Missouri right now, we're seeing a big spike in, in homicides, um, and that's not just limited 
to urban areas. Uh, in, in rural areas, too, unfortunately, we're seeing quite a big spike uh, in, in, in the state, and we are ranked, uh, unfortunately, according to one of the state senators, a Republican state senator here in Missouri, uh, based on FBI statistics, we're in the top six of most violent rural areas based on homicides right now. Um, so what, what are your thoughts? I mean, do, do you have, have you thought about any of the positions that you would take or any of the ideas that you have um, regarding violence in, in Missouri and specifically gun violence? Um, yeah, so there's a couple things. One is common sense um, reforms. Um, we're seeing lacks of background checks when they're transferred, when guns are transferred from individual to individual. Uh, we're seeing lack of um, just general CPR first aid and tourniquet um, application, sort of the lack of um, how to how to even apply a uh, gauze bandage to a wound or how to apply a tourniquet to an individual uh, should they get shot? Um, because um, it takes an ambulance on average about 15 minutes or so to get to a location. Mm. Um, some of the historic school shootings, people died because they actually bled out. Um, because they didn't have people that were trained in CPR first aid and and how to apply pressure to the wound to treat it. Uh, and so we're seeing the increase in violence, but we're also seeing a lack of preparedness on the individual side that of, of when you get cut, you put a Band-Aid on the wound mm-hmm. kind of thing. But with gun violence, people aren't trained on how to apply that Band-Aid. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a doctor. uh, I don't know if you you know them. uh, Dr. Uh, LJ Punch, who has been doing a lot of work around that issue, especially on trainings with Stop the Bleed, uh, which is a a program to teach folks how to deal with uh, gunshot wounds, uh, the T is is the nonprofit that they're going around and, and helping a lot of folks with that. Um, yeah, it d- does seem unfortunately we're at that we're at that position now where really you have to be prepared for those situations. Um, yes, that's that's exactly. happening. Yeah. The the other thing to note too is that um, the the Department of Conservation and stuff too is very big, um, mm-hmm. and so we're seeing this. This argument of, of Democrats want to take away every single gun. No, we don't. Um, I myself actually have a um, conservation uh, hunting license and 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 stuff. But yeah. what we're seeing is that we're seeing oh, um, like handguns and and guns that were designed to kill be used instead of the guns that were designed to hunt deer or the guns that were designed for the military and military purposes um, that aren't owned by military um, people. Um, In fact, the Second Amendment, um, when you look at the wording, it says for a well-regulated militia. The whole purpose of the Second Amendment originally... um, 
was for a government to be able to create an army. Yeah, a little bit different than where. And it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. There have been some, you know, historical looks at the Second Amendment and its interpretation under the law uh, over time, and specifically uh, the, you know, the development of the NRA over time, which is now uh, in court uh, in New York. The attorney general there is suing. Um, a really interesting case, if you haven't seen it, but one about how a lot of that money has been corrupted and that process has been corrupted and that, you know, they try to grow and do a lot more than they originally were doing uh, when they were talking about uh, sports shooting and a whole lot of other stuff. But, um, you know, it's just gotten it's gotten to be a lot. Right. We're just we just keep arguing instead of trying to deal with 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 solutions to them. And, you know, you're talking about actually saving folks lives in this situation. And, and that's, you know, obviously the most important thing that we can do. Um, you did get, so you got a couple more questions. I know we're, we're getting close on time, uh, and I want you to get there, uh, on commercial, uh, well, the, uh, yeah. So on, on CAFOs, which are these concentrated animal, uh, farming operations where, you know, they just cram in a whole bunch of animals and there's big factory farm type situations where, uh, a lot of them are owned, uh, not only locally, but also uh, internationally. Uh, and yeah, this is the question. Okay. So these are owned oftentimes by international countries and they cause heavy pollution to waterways. Uh, and I would also say in a lot of other ways, there's a lot of waste that's created by animals in these kinds of situations. And, uh, we're, we're seeing a lot of deregulation of that space. One of those I, I got to visit quite a bit, but, uh, not too far, uh, from St. Louis in Franklin County, there, there's a proposal to basically allow these CAFOs to go everywhere and anywhere, uh, which, I mean, how many of us want to live right next to, to a, a pig CAFO, a concentrated pig farm with everything that's being made there? And then once that stuff gets, it gets into the air, it gets into the fields, it gets into your, to all these kinds of water. Uh, what, what are your thoughts um, about CAFOs, about that kind of farming and where it's being placed and how much I mean, how much do you think that that should be controlled locally versus statewide? Um, yeah, I just, I guess, general thoughts about that. So one thing that people don't really know about Missouri is that agriculture in general, not necessarily CAFOs and, and animal livestock, per se, um, but just vegetation farming in general, agriculture is the number one industry of Missouri. Um, it's sort of been the backbone of sort of the Missouri economy, uh, which is sort of an interesting thing that people don't really know. But on the other hand, we have these CAFOs, which are sort of the big animal agriculture that has to be done in a way so that it's it's away from these large metropolitan areas for the most part because not everyone can live in an area where there's high pollution. Uh, people have asthma. People have other health conditions uh, that it could be very detrimental to their health and well-being. Uh, and so there's sort of that catch-22 of where do we place them? If so, how do we place them? Um, and frankly, I feel like more of the stuff could be done through local control than as a state control, um, because communities know what they want for their community. 
uh, time and time again, we've seen Jeff City try to say to um, local government, your voice doesn't matter through what they call uh, preemptive action. And so, which mm-hmm. makes it so that the local government can't control it. Uh, right. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's very right. And I mean, right now, actually, if, if you all haven't seen, there's a film called Right to Harm. Uh, and it's, it's based off of this, this right to farm movement. It actually goes pretty close. I just mentioned asthma, but uh, you're right. I mean, if folks who are living near these things in rural areas, and it depends where they put them, sometimes suburban areas too, uh, you don't see too many uh, urban, although there, there were some complaints about someone trying to start one uh, or something similar to that not too long ago in a very concentrated area. But, uh, I mean, and, and it just... It takes down your home values, and we're already looking at the rural economy and how much has been lost over time. I mean, that's just really just pushing folks over the edge as much as possible, and it's uh, it's unfortunate. And I know Audrey had a few other questions in there. Um, we did get to a few of those. I know Audrey tuned in a little bit late. That's okay. Uh, Mahir, uh, same, actually, because Mahir asked for, for background about yourself. And so for anybody who does tune in late, it's okay. You can actually take from this point and rewind any of these shows all these shows are going to be available afterwards too so that you can go back and at the beginning you know we try to introduce folks a little bit too but uh luke barber is a candidate is is the democratic nominee for house district 89 very exciting we had a a great conversation today is there anything that you would like to leave folks with any last thoughts any ideas and one of them that i really have this is a question for me because you obviously know so much about the process, about government. Um, what would you tell somebody who's watching right now, somebody who doesn't know as much, maybe hasn't been as involved, um, what they can do to get more involved in state and local government? The biggest thing I can say is to um, educate yourself about issues. Um, educate yourself about what it is that you want Um Find out what you want, and then uh, try to make your voice heard uh, in kind of the simplest nutshell. Uh, But you're not going to be able to make your voice heard if the people in there won't even listen. So the biggest thing that I can say is if you don't like who's in there, you have to vote them out. which is sort of the, the big deal because uh, Mercy and currently the, my Republican incumbent do all these uh, processes that are designed to make it more difficult to have a voice, to speak your mind on these issues. Um, we have the opportunity on November 3rd to say enough is enough. Let's, we're sick of the, we're sick of the lies. We're sick of the um, BS in government. We're sick of the um, poor leadership. And we want something new. We want something new. We want something better. And that's what the opportunity we have on November 3rd is. Thanks for joining us on the Alad Pod. 
You can participate in future town halls and see all of our past ones at aladgross.live. You can reach me there too, and I'd love to hear your ideas. For now, this is Alad Gross, and I'll see you on the next Alad Podcast.